Welcome everybody. This is Mark Horseman of Manager Tools. Glad you could join us for the Spring 2013 Licensee Conference Call. Uh, this is, I think, the first time I've ever, we've ever done a licensee conference call where I've been on the road. Um, we had a last minute change to my schedule and I am in San Jose, California, using uh, my laptop and Skype and a Bluetooth headset. Uh, Wendy is on the call as well, making sure that some of the logistics behind the scenes go well. There are three parts of this call. We're scheduled for 90 minutes. The first part of the call is the 20, what I'll call big questions, the ones that were sent in advance, uh, which, where, where I had time to actually develop uh, answers. Um, the second part is something new, a series of yes, no questions that people seem to like because we got about 50 of them. Uh, and I will do my best to answer them in a yes, no fashion. Uh, some of them prohibit that, but whatever. Uh, and the third part will be a chance for live calls. Uh, at the, uh, if you think of a, a, a live question, I'm sorry, if you think of a question that you'd like to ask me, either derivative of something that we shared today or a, a, a question that you didn't have a chance to send us before the deadline, um, I'm going to turn it over to Wendy now, and Wendy's going to tell you how we'll go about doing that. Okay, so if you think of a question or you have a question and we have time at the end to include it, we will. If you send those to me um, at my email address, which is wendy, W-E-N-D-I-I, at manager-tools.com, then I'll take them first come, first serve, and we'll, fill it, we'll take as many as we can. I'll read them out to Mark, and we'll watch him answer on the fly. And we will finish in, at the end of the 90 minutes on time in true manager tool style. We'll answer as many as we can. I expect to be done having rehearsed these answers a couple of times. I expect to be done in about an hour and 10 to an hour and 15 minutes. I could be wrong. Depends on how good my rehearsals are, were. So here we go. First question is about confidentiality on resumes. I like this question. I think it's clever. I think most people don't think about their resume being potentially a source of a breach of confidentiality. Having said that, as I think it's a good question, I, I think this is a relatively minor issue and I think it's easily addressed. The general rule when it comes to resumes and confidentiality is that a normal resume would not have anything in it that would be considered a breach of confidentiality. Um, and, and for the purposes of this, this call, I'm going to assume that the questioner is normal in this regard. And folks, for those of you who don't know, I don't know who these questioners are. Um, I think actually I only know one of the questioners. Um, it, it, if there's something that your firm attaches some form of special secrecy to, such as a budding technology or process, you would either leave accomplishments related to that out of your resume, or you would camouflage them. For instance, achieve 6% cost reduction qu quarter over quarter on new technology product through vendor normalization. In other words, new technology product would be the way that you would, you would, uh, camouflage the uh, technology that you believe somehow may be of interest to competitors. Um, there are some reasons why this general rule of not worrying about it or camouflaging it uh, is, is, is necessary and why they're worth mentioning. If you're a very senior person where what you do significantly affects the organization, um, there is an assumption, of course, that at more senior levels, you would have more information about the organization, which is generally true. Okay? At the same time, though, the kinds of accomplishments you'll normally have on your resume 
are usually already public knowledge. There's the old joke that senior, senior executives, people who lead divisions and groups and so on, don't get reviews because their performance reviews are published every quarter in the Wall Street Journal. Um, um, while there is a higher possibility, as I said, that you'd know something that would be considered intel, if you will, it would be less likely that you would consider it, inc consider including that, either because of the rule I just mentioned or you would camouflage it. Um, if you're not a senior person that has knowledge of the business at a strategic level, no offense folks, but the vast majority of your accomplishments will not carry any intel. And if they do, camouflage them. Um, and frankly, Wendy and I just finished recording Curtil's cast about resumes. The vast majority of resumes are so terrible that this isn't, the, the, the breach of confidentiality isn't a reason why you wouldn't get to an interview. That said, I will t tell you, even though it's not in the question, it's the interview where you need to be careful. I just spoke to a good friend of mine who was in a sales call and she was grilled about her products by a potential competitor. And it was very clear to me that it was unethical the way in which they were approaching this quote sales call unquote. Um, you've got to be careful in interviews. Uh, there's a greater chance that you'll slip. Uh, there's a greater chance that they can probe obviously because an interview is interactive. Okay. Next question. Should I take a new position as the managing director in Detroit? Folks, if any of you ever think you can do my job, uh, anybody ever thinks that, I'm gonna give them this question and tell them they have to make a recommendation and they have to sleep well after giving that recommendation. This is a tough question. Um, but we're not in the business of giving advice and we're not in the business of telling you good luck with that, so here's our, my recommendation. My recommendation for you, sir, is not to, to take the Detroit job for the following reasons I'll list, but I want you to listen well because there's a third way potentially in this particular situation. The first one is family first. Um, you know, I, I presented yesterday in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, and I'm in San Jose today, and American Airlines made me struggle to get here, but I'm, I'm a very loyal American Airlines person. Uh, and at the end of the day, I use my analogy of holding up a yellow peanut M&M in front of your face and putting it the, a distance far enough away from your eyes so that it covers the sun. So that in other words, you can see the yellow peanut M&M and it's roughly, thanks to perspective, as big as the sun. And the idea of work-family balance is really, really silly because the idea that you would balance something as important as your family with something notably less important as you, than your family, which is work, is a bit like comparing a yellow peanut M&M and the sun. Um, and if you leave that yellow peanut and M&M out in the sun, it'll melt. Um, and by the way, for those of you who don't understand the analogy, your family is the sun, okay? The way you describe this move, and, and to be clear, the description of the move is often where guidance like this is hard for me to give or feel confident about. The way you describe this move, there's a significant negative for your family here. Now look, there are many situations where career-enhancing moves are hard on your family to some degree, that there's some trade-off involved. But you seem to make this one out that it's pretty black and white, that it's better for your family to stay where you are, and distinctly so. Now, having said that, I'll tell you, I don't read anything in here that says you've said anything about, you've not said anything in your question about conversations with your spouse, and that worries me. Maybe you've done so, but everything you said relative to family impact could have been gleaned without having talked to your spouse. So, whatever you do, talk to your spouse. 
And folks, if your spouse ever says, I don't want to go, don't go. Okay? Um, now, you might be saying, oh, gee, I, I didn't want Mark to say that because, you know, that, that may affect my career. Sure, it's going to affect your career, but you are entitled to say no to promotions with uh, promotional opportunities that include family moves. The general rule is one declination, one declining of an offer like this isn't a pattern. Okay? In most firms, one turndown isn't a cause for a career black mark. Usually it takes three turndowns. Okay? Um, smart bosses, by the way, don't make three promotional and move opportunities to one person in a three-year period while their children are in high school, which tends to be the time where most people get stuck. Not in a bad way, they just say, I want to stay where I am because my kids have been in this school district for a number of years, or they started this high school, I don't want them in three different high schools. That takes away from their ability to look good in terms of preparing for college, and it also tends to be where uh, kids are most sensitive, in part because of puberty, in part because high school is just is really hard for a lot of people. It makes it hard for kids, lots of moves during that time. Um, and generally, the bigger the firm, the more likely you'll get more chances. That said, I don't know your firm. It's entirely possible that one declination is a huge black mark. I wouldn't be terribly excited about that firm, but it's possible. And, and I don't know that, so it's, I can't feel certain about the implications here. The third point I would make is you need to talk to your boss. You need to explain your concerns. You need to tell him or her you're excited about the move, but you have concerns. Um, Maybe they will give you the money you need to justify, in this case, your wife leaving her job. I don't know what role you're in, though it sounds to me like it could be a staff job. And a move to a managing director role often does carry a notable salary increase. I always shock people at conferences and when I'm training people, trying to, un trying to help them understand about companies and salary uh, administration and so on, that an assistant store manager at a Walmart might make Forty or fifty thousand dollars, but a store manager makes one hundred and fifty. And there's a well-established uh, uh, principle that you want the number one job to be twice, or maybe even three times. And some places they say ten times more than the second job because they want people to want the top job um, because the top job is hard enough. If it's only a fifty percent pay increase from the number two job, but it's a ten times increase in stress. That's not a good economic trade-off for most people. And frankly, most CEOs I've coached, one of the first things they say when they get the job is, oh my gosh, this is not what I thought, and is this all there is? Um, so I would talk to your boss. I'd say I'd like to take the move, but here are my concerns. Um, this is not a case where you and your boss are at odds, unless in fact you and your boss are, um, and where you should play your cards so close to the vest that they don't know why you might say no. And if it's close and you're not certain, decide on the side of your family. That's what I would recommend. Okay, question number three. How does a bad manager get found out? Okay, a bad manager gets found out by somebody above him. I know this is not easy to hear and I'm sorry, but we don't pull punches here. Or he or she gets found out by a failure to perform on the part of him or his team, okay? Now, guys, that said, there are plenty of executives in the world whose definition of a bad manager is one who doesn't achieve results, okay? And that's it. 
But it does not include, their definition of a bad manager does, does not include somebody who achieves results but doesn't achieve retention. In other words, they're a dictator or they burn through their people. And guys, sorry, but we can't change everyone's definition of good management. If somebody was a bad manager and then was a bad director, when they become, a ba when they become an executive, they're going to be a bad executive. And they will apply the same rules that got them to where they are to the people who are working for them. And that will perpetuate the problem. There are other things you can do besides leave. I think at some point in the question, I'm getting old now and so I'm having trouble reading the size of uh, the questions on my document here, but uh, it seems that manager tools errs on the side of caution and there's nothing a direct really can do but leave. We do err on the side of, the on the side of caution um, and we're frankly proud of that. Um, but there are other things you can do besides leave. You can find another job in your firm um, I know somebody very well who loves their industry, who loves the work they're doing and has the worst boss on the planet and is thinking about leaving because they don't believe their firm will be flexible at all with them in terms of other things they might consider. Okay? You could get promoted despite the fact that you despise your boss. Don't, don't hit me for that word. It seems like you could in light of this situation, but you can get promoted through the sponsorship of somebody else, somebody more senior. or you could simply outperform your boss to such an extent that even your bad boss won't be able to stop you. One of my promotions at Procter & Gamble caused my former boss to be significantly punished. Um, I'm, not, I'm not proud of that, but, but it happened. Um, we have never said um, uh, that you can never hint to a trusted advisor at a senior level um, about a problem um, we've never said you, can, you can't do that. What would worry me is if someone created a friendship with a senior person based on the problems they're having. In other words, they created the relationship with the senior person specifically in order to throw their boss under the bus. It, it can happen. Um, you know, I'm not saying I would rule that out as a possibility, but it's not an indelicate effort. It's not at all. Um, the other thing too, there are also ways to not say anything the least bit negative about your boss, but send a clear message that things aren't well. And once people start snooping around, a more senior person, for instance, if somebody says, hey, how are things down there? I, we had a bad, bad quarter thing or, you know, kind of a glitch there. You say, well, hard to say, boss. And when they say, what does that mean? Say, well, um, I'm probably not the person to ask that question of, right? And what you do is you create more questions in the mind of that executive who has expressed some interest in why things aren't as they should be. If an executive said to you in passing, you know, I don't, I don't see any of your boss's guys around. I, I've seen you a couple of times in meetings up here, but I don't see anybody else, and yet you guys are kind of visible. And if you, say, if you, if you shrug your shoulders and says, well, you'd have to ask my boss about that, um, as opposed to saying, Hey, look, I got to tell you, my boss is great. We are totally swamped, and he's very careful about how he puts in front, who he puts in front of senior executives, and so that's not a worry. I wouldn't worry about that at all. That's, a, that's an okay answer. That's completely reasonable when you're supporting your boss. But to say, yeah, sorry, we're, you know, um, our boss is not interested in our visibility, and that's probably too strong. And you can give a non-negative response to an executive's inquiry that would cause 
an executive to go, I'm going to pay more attention. And if in fact somebody's a bad boss and executives start paying more attention, and by the way, you ought to be answering those kinds of questions to executives who would look into it, who aren't just going to rubber stamp what your boss does, um, you might discover that that executive is smart enough to also, after the fact, let the other shoe drop and not tell anybody where he heard the, or she heard the vague intonations that maybe something was wrong. Because of course, you didn't say anything bad or wrong, didn't throw anybody underneath the bus, but the executive is smart enough to read between the lines. And because he recognizes that you did the right thing but didn't uh, castigate anybody, he's not going to say, well, this came from horsemen. Um, because if they're in fact supporters of your boss, that could be a negative. Um, once people start snooping around and they start asking questions, you can clam up a little bit. You can give a hint that it's out of fear that you fear of your boss and why you're clamping up, why you're why you're clamming up. Um, and then, if those more senior people or HR people or investigators or OD or OR people or whatever start poking around and they can't find anything, either they're supporting your boss or it may be that your perception is off and your boss isn't that bad or, as I said, the organization is essentially blessing your boss's behavior. And if the organization is going to bless your boss's behavior and you've got a problem with your boss's behavior, um, it's probably not getting any better. And my recommendation, even if you're in a plum job, um, if you can't see a path out of it in the next two years um, through normal paths, you need to find a different job, even if it means taking a step sideways. Um, now, regarding your question and the, the, the implications you make relative to our guidance, we do err on the side of caution when it comes to communicating damaging information about somebody's boss. We do so because guidance in situations like these guys, it just requires an incredible knowledge about an individual situation. And we can't publish one standard of guidance that will satisfy everybody individual, satisfy everybody's individual need. We can't do it. If we give guidance that an inept and angry communicator implements, in other words, a direct who's an inept communicator and is a little bit angry, and we provide guidance that he or she hears and it causes he, his, his or her defenestration, um, folks, we'd feel responsible, okay? And by the way, if you're looking it up, defenestration means being thrown out one's window. Um, and look, guys, there are always jobs. There are always jobs. Heck, we have openings, okay? Get your resume ready. Warm up your network, and I'm speaking to the questioner now. If I were you, I would get my resume ready, I would warm up my network, and I would start the process. You can cross this chasm if you choose to leave in two steps. And the first step is get ready, okay? And look, I believe that karma is going to get your boss, but often karma works more slowly than we might like. Um, and just to be clear, to set the record straight, your, your quoting about our guidance is misleading, okay? Exit interview guidance is exit interview guidance only, okay? And it's not confined to bosses. Exit interview feedback doesn't work, regardless of whether it's politically smart, and frankly, we just we think it's not, okay? Um, you're leaving. How important is your feedback? Yes, companies say they want everybody to be happy, but the fact is it's too darn hard, okay? Um, there are exceptions, but they're rare, and we can't write casts for the exceptional companies of the world because there are only 50 of them. Um, 360 feedback is reviewed by lots of people, and it never amounts to anything um, if we're talking about a bad boss. Um, in fact, it gets discounted precisely because it's anonymous. 
but your boss is going to know it's you. Um, and look, your HR, the reason you don't go to HR in a lot of cases is because the HR is there to protect the company, as well as your boss, as well as you. And if there's a conflict, you know, you may be the one that gets thrown under the bus. Okay? There are risks in all these things. So my point with that is we stand by our guidance. If you choose to speak up, we wish you well. And look, we'll try to help you if there's a train wreck. We want you to be successful, but, but as I've said before in different forms, we try not to help people do things we think are ineffective and dangerous. Wendy and I were talking just today about um, a, a young person who asked us a couple of years ago, I, I want to leave my job. I don't like my job. What should I do? And we said, well, we think you should stay. You've only been out of school for six months, and you don't really know what the heck you're talking about. And, um, and he wrote back and said, well, okay, thanks, but I disagree with this, and I need to know how to leave. And I wrote back, we don't recommend a way to do things we think are stupid. Okay? So if you're asking us how, to, how you can subtly help your boss get found, um, your options are limited and we're not going to give you anything more other than you could probably give some vague answers that might cause an inquisitive executive to, to be more involved. And, and, and as a general rule, when situations like this happen, we encourage you to trust in God but keep your powder dry. And that means having your resume ready and warming up your network. And look, you may not leave, but what's bad about having a warm network and having your resume ready? Frankly, it's just a form of, that's just step one in professional career management. Okay, question four. Does Manager Tools have a plan to issue a series of casts for senior leaders? Yes, we do. And I know the person who asked this, call, asked this question is on the call. We absolutely have a plan for that. Uh, all the topics that you list are on a list that I have, and I actually have plenty more. Um, the, the problem here is twofold. Executive guidance is much harder. The egos are bigger. The issues are more complex. Lots of executives think they have management down just because they're in a leadership role. And yet a lot of the problems that executives have that they want solved with executive tools are actually caused by their own managerial weakness. Okay? Um, executives generally believe, and probably won't be moved off of it easily, that each one of their problems is distinctly unique. Whereas most managers recognize they're dealing with the standard kind of problems that most managers have. So our habit of being able to reach everyone, or related to the last question in terms of is our guidance always applicable, you know, we say that our guidance works for 90% of the managers 90% of the time. And there are some people who listen and go, I'm in the 10%, I'm in the 10%, I'm in the 10%, and none of our guidance applies. Well, I think the person's probably wrong, but I can't say for sure because I don't know who the person is. Um, uh, there are certainly some industries where we would likely to be less applicable. Um, but what that means is that we're only accurate in terms of the guidance we give 80% of the time. We're completely fine with that. The problem is at the executive level, everybody believes they're in the 1%. Um, there's also another issue here, which is us being able to pay for it. Okay? Executives, if you'll notice, I don't do nearly as much one-on-one -on -one coaching as I used to do. Um, we're delivering a lot more training, and we're trying to standardize. In fact, thanks to Mike, we've standardized our training options. Executives generally don't like training. They like training when they call us and say, come train my guys, they need it, but I'm not coming. Um, but executives individually don't like training. They want consultants. And consulting is a lot tougher. 
Um, it's a lot tougher to, to systematize. Um, if I'm going to coach somebody, uh, it's going to take me a couple of days in advance, um, which is included in my daily rate, but I don't get to bill for them. I only get to bill for the time I'm there. And time that I spend not traveling, where I'm spending preparing to spend time with one person, is very hard. So I worry that executive tools would not pay for itself. And frankly, the company's doing fine, but there are times when we're cash starved for some of the ideas we have um, because we don't want to sell a portion of the company to, to venture capitalists. Um, because we don't believe anybody else knows what we know about management um, and we don't want to be told what to do. <laughs> Big surprise there. Bottom line though, yes. Um, the more people I hear from on this, the more I'll start putting it out. Maybe Mike and I could do one every once in a while and put it in the standard feed and say, if you're not an executive, don't listen. Um, but if people have ideas about how we can make this happen sooner, I'm happy to hear it, particularly from the questioner. Okay, next question. How do I get my directs um, to not take work so personally? <laughs> I don't know, guys. I, I think everybody here at Manager Tools takes work really personally. The people I've known that have been really good at their jobs, they take work really personally, and I, I scream for people who take their work personally. I want that. I mean, how can you really be great at something if it's not personal to you? Now, I, I start that way because I, I don't think your analysis of this particular problem is accurate, but I'm always careful to be humble uh, about that because you may in fact act, you, you certainly, you're there, you're on the ground, you know better than me. But I, but I don't think it's a matter here of taking things personally. I think this person is suffering from insecurity and they're engaging in ineffective behavior. Now, I'm not gonna tell you how to address their insecurity. We, we don't do that. Because even if you solve their insecurity, and folks, you can't because you ain't that good. You're not a psychologist, therapist, psychiatrist. Um, even if you solve their insecurity, there's an assumption there that the insecurity is the driver of the behavior and you can't actually prove that. And you may end up having solved the insecurity and not get a change in behavior. And if the behavior doesn't change and you've spent a lot of time solving the insecurity, you've wasted a lot of time as a manager and the outcomes that you get for your organization will be no different even though this person is secure. Your job is not to save souls, okay? Or, or, or to help people become mentally healthy. That's their responsibility, not yours. Not said, I'm, I'm gonna go a little further here and tell you some things that I normally wouldn't because in fact, I'm not so sure that these things will work for you, but you're talking, we're talking about a particular situation here that's interesting to me. Because I know my directs really well and have always have invested time in that, once I learned how to be a good manager, um, I have a habit of being incredibly direct with them. And guys, if you doubt this, please send an email to Wendy and ask, she'll tell you. Um, it's, it's not unusual because of my direct style that newer team members are surprised by my willingness to point out their mistakes. And look, I'm, I'm a demanding manager. Uh, Wendy and Danny can certainly tell you that. In the beginning, people who work for me are nervous. Um, uh, I have developed a habit of asking people who are fairly new when I sense a fear in terms of how, I, I think they're fearful of how they're doing or concern about their performance or whatever, before I'm able to roll out positive negative feedback I ask them, are you worried? And often they say yes. Or maybe they say something like, I'm not really sure what you're thinking. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just uncertain about how I'm doing. And my response to them is to say, 
You know how you'll know, you'll know when you're in trouble? I'll tell you, quote, you're in trouble, unquote. And frankly, for right now, if I don't say that, things are fine. Now, you're not going to get negative feedback from me, of course, the people who we're going to hire are going to know what that is. But really, negative feedback's not a big damn deal, right? So that's just a minor thing. So that's what I would do. In theory, that's what I'd do for this guy. I'd be encouraging him to keep it to himself. In other words, his whining and complaining. Uh, and I would not worry too much about whether he expresses problems or concerns um, in the future. Um, I really wouldn't. Um, you know, I don't want him to whine. And I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't worry that I'm suddenly going to lose the fact that he's going to be candid with me about a problem that is beyond just whining. I'm just not going to. Um, there's a pretty fine line there, and my experience with people like this is making sure you leave that door open, and frankly, he ought to know it's part of his job to bring forward things that, that um, if he has to express a problem or something like that, he ought to know that's his job. Um, if, if, um, if you leave that door open, as you're going to end up with the possibility that that person's going to always be whining. Um, and I find whining very distasteful, me personally. So I might, just continuing the thread, I might actually say to this person, dude, really? I talk to you all the time. You know damn well I respect your opinion. Get over it. Um, or I might say, dude, if I, were getting set, if I were getting ready to set you up to fail, rest assured, you'd fail. And the idea that I would do something in order to design to create an opportunity for you to fail impugns my integrity and it's tiresome, so stop. Now, some of you might be surprised, gee, that's not feedback. Well, it depends. I don't know where this person is in the feedback model and, and I, I've discovered that in some cases, people who are insecure, when you actually say their behavior, they're not willing to deal with the fact that it's their behavior. They always have a reason. Um, that said, you ask for feedback examples, so I'll give you a couple. For instance, when you say you're being set up to fail, you're impugning my motives. Not cool. Can you stop it? Okay. When you say your voice is not being heard, it sounds like whining to me because you know there are other situations where I do listen. Can you think about that for me? Okay. Guys, if you think somebody sounds like a whiner, it's probably not smart to not tell them they sound like a whiner. If they sound that way to you, they sound that way to a lot of the people. And I'll tell you, you don't, you don't get very far as a professional by complaining about stuff. Um, whining isn't what professionals or people who get promoted or people who get raises or people who keep their jobs do. So, again, I, I don't think he's taking his job too personally. I think he's just insecure. Okay, question six. What's the right way to present handling multiple positions with the same company in, in one resume? Um, I, I don't... Uh, I, I don't think I understand this question. This is a basic question we've covered several times in several different ways. You, you just have to least list each job separately. Now, I just got some feedback. Wendy, are you still there? Okay, good. So, okay, fair enough. Um, you just have to least e list each job separately, and you don't list them all under one company heading. You list the company's name repeatedly right next to the job that you were doing. Um, you list each new job title and you name the company over and over again. So, for instance, you would have in one job, January 04 to March of 07, Programmer, Microsoft. 
and then that would be below the next job, which is March 07 to March 09, for instance, senior programmer Microsoft, and then uh, March 09 to January 10, senior programmer technical expert Microsoft, as an example. And that way we can look quickly at a resume and see that you, how long you stayed at a company. So should be fairly straightforward. And there's ample guidance out there, I think, in our podcasts about that. Question seven. Did I do the right thing about telling about my boss? The direct of mine was, by not telling my boss that my, a direct of mine was job hunting. You did the wrong thing, dude. You did absolutely the wrong thing for several reasons. First, when your directs come to you and talk about their professional life, which includes job hunting, there can be no assumption of confidentiality by this guy, Bob, when he tells you that. I don't care whether you're his friend or not. We have a cast about confidentiality. Your directs can't tell you stuff that they, they expect you to keep in confidence, period. When a direct tells a manager anything, it's as if the direct has told the company itself because you are the company. And that's a hard truth for a lot of people, but it's true, okay? If you tell no one else, you're keeping a secret from the company. So based on what you say about Bob in this situation, he's material to the firm, uh, his loss is a material loss, not telling someone else, your boss obviously being the right person, is the equivalent of you knowing the firm's biggest customer is shopping their contract with your competitors and you keeping quiet. And look, I, I'm going to take a guess. I'm going to go out on a limb here. Uh, I suspect there's a real chance that someone discovered that you knew Bob was searching and the assumption was made that you were not playing for the company. In other words, you were taking Bob's side and or you were covering up for a potential turnover danger on your team. In other words, trying to avoid admitting, hey, I may lose a guy who's really material to the, the, the firm. And I'm not going to say it's out of the question. It may only be a 10% chance. But that's the reason you got, quote, laid off, unquote. Um, we know, and, and that may be hard to hear, but we know lots of people who say, yeah, I got laid off, when in fact, we know enough about their situation to have a pretty good chance that it was a very small layoff, and this the layoff was created in order to fire this person without firing them. So don't do that again, dude. Bad call. Question eight, okay. Um, how can you turn ineffective feedback that you've received into something that helps you become a better manager? Uh, look, I wouldn't worry about this situation. That said, I'll admit most people I know would worry about stuff like this. But I'm a be big believer, I think I have it quoted somewhere else in tonight's call, that uh, the old saying, worry is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it doesn't get you anywhere. It sounds to me like you didn't do anything wrong. Although generally when I hear problems, people always discount their impact on the situation, even when I do that about my problems. Um, and that said, even when you don't do anything wrong, people plot against you, people misunderstand you, CEOs draw the wrong conclusions because they're at 30,000 feet, um, but they're talking about something you did at 1,000 feet. And there's nothing you can do about that, folks. There's nothing. There are 5% of every crowd who hate the top performer who is an ethically good person because these 5% are twisted and small and evil. And 5% of 7 billion people is a lot of people. Okay? Um, the lack of feedback you're getting now probably means you're fine. And guys, CEOs are notoriously fickle. They forget easily. Yeah, and I'll admit, they forget easily and they also tend to remember quickly if your name comes up again. 
I know it's boring, but my recommendation to you is to get results and cultivate your relationships. That's really all you can do at this point. Now, regarding your other point about you being bitter, you need to get the F over that, okay? How you feel is your fault. You got poked, poked with a lousy situation umbrella, but you've gotten bitter all by yourself. Um, without the motivation to do your job, you're doomed. And what will be really bad is if you don't have the motivation and you feel like you're justified in that lack of motivation, they're gonna fire you because your lack of motivation causes you to not do your job and they'll be right to do it. So dig deep, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, get over the bitterness, breathe in, breathe out, move on, get back to work. Okay, number nine. Am I rolling out manager tools too fast? I can't tell from your note precisely, but I don't think it really matters. You've rolled out a lot of stuff based on your note, and you imply that up until now there wasn't a lot of pushback, but now there is. If you believe, guys, if you believe you have a generally supportive and professional team and then their pushback increases a little bit, maybe their pushback is justified. So just wait a bit, let them digest some, and then roll out some more, okay? And I'm gonna admit here in this situation, it's hard for me to tell exactly what's going on because you list a bunch of stuff, but you don't tell me when each was rolled out and how you did it. Um, and you gotta remember, you didn't say it here, but remember you have to tell people what is coming in advance. Um, if they don't know what's coming in advance and you roll it out, but you didn't tell them it was coming, it's normal for them to push back. Remember, you never introduce managerial change without first introducing that managerial change. Um, also, I've discovered that a lot of managers sort of divorce their managerial changes from their operational tempo at the company. If operational tempo has been pretty high, they may just be worn out. Or if operational tempo has increased recently, they're thinking, it's hard enough for me to keep up with the workload that's, that's suddenly spiked, and now you're asking me to change my relationship with you, that's hard. So, wait a bit, and there's nothing wrong with doing that. Okay, question 10. Um, how should one deal with the problem of salary inversion? New hires get paid more than old hands. This is an incredibly hard question to answer because it's also an organizational problem, more so than a manager problem. And this is not organization tools, this is manager tools. Uh, organizations generally have an accepted approach to salary administration guys. And one, generally, a manager generally does well not to get too far from the accumulated history of your firm, okay? Unfortunately, that's why often HR gets an outsized hand in these things because they're the ones who are involved every year, but managers tend to change roles, okay? Normally, what I would say in this situation is to cut back on hiring and invest in the folks you have, okay? In the same way that companies, rather than trying to get new products, ought to try to get sell more of their good products to their already existing customers. Um, if I were gonna say that, I would couple it with some discussion regarding your need for increased productivity, but, your situation is unique. You're a professional service firm. If that means what I think it means, your growth is constrained by not being able to grow productivity, for instance, consultancies, because you can't get more from each contributor because they're being fully billed now, and you can't add more work to them that's billable. In other words, they're billing 40 or 50 hours a week. Now, if that's a wrong assumption, you're gonna have to disregard my guidance and write me another note that explains what you're doing in more detail. So my recommendations are you A, change your recruiting strategy, sorry. B, offer slightly less than market to new hires. And C, budget the difference for top performer increases. And by changing the recruiting strategy, I mean communicating this problem to your team 
explaining to them that we need to temporarily suppress, suppress paying market salaries in order to fund increases for top performers. And that generally gets people attention, okay? Maybe this means um, a few less exper experienced fo folks getting hired, but based on what I'm reading, you seem to be able to, I believe you can rely on the managerial behaviors you've mentioned to grow people faster than what's usual. I have to tell you, a lot of companies grow fastest when they have to, and they discover all kinds of abilities among their junior people, simply because the managers or the executives are forced to delegate and people step up. And the idea that there's no more productivity in the firm is only true until you test it and you find out whether or not somebody's got another gear that they can add 50% more work to. Now, in your case, that may not be so because of the professional services nature of your work. Um, the kind of, I mean, so maybe you're gonna hire a few less experienced folks, but again, you should be able to bring them up speed. And you can tell recruits that something like joining a growing firm with solid management is a bet on the future, okay? The kind of professional responsibility and growth you're gonna get here with us, it probably doesn't make sense for you to push for maximum compensation. And look, we need to learn. Don't be afraid of losing people because they want $5,000 more than you're willing to give. There are people out there, there are people out there who will take that $5,000 because even though they believe the market will pay them more, they don't want to go through the process of getting another offer. Okay? That's my recommendation. Number 11. How do I deal with the director who continues to blame everyone and everything else? <laughs> Fire them. Uh, Look, I, uh, and there's a lot more data on this question that we didn't include on the slide, guys, but I'm not a big fan of feed forward for the vast majority of professionals. I, look, I love Marshall Goldsmith. He's a god. He's a genius. But his experience with feed forward is much more with senior folks where there's a known significant issue and there's significant organizational interest in solving the issue. And in fact, in some cases, it's an existential threat on the part of the executive who's getting the feed forward. Marshall charges, I think, a quarter million dollars to show up, so it's not like he's coaching individual managers at low levels. So your guy, when we're talking about here, to my guess, based on the 120 or so words I read, has a problem, again, with insecurity. And again, that it doesn't really matter. You want his behavior to change. But it's hard for me in this situation to know precisely what the behavior is because you've only characterized it as opposed to actually defined it. Saying uh, somebody blames everyone else is not behavior, it's a characterization of people's behavior. That said, I'm gonna go out on a limb here, and some of you already know what I'm gonna say, I recommend you use our negative feedback model, okay? I'm not saying our model's better than Marshall's, but I bet 100 bucks that in this situation, it'll achieve better results for you. Uh, well, well, absolutely holding Marshall's uh, approach of feed forward in very high regard. Um, the reason feedback is better here is because it says specifically what the behavior is you're targeting. Whereas feed forward sometimes gives people an out and they don't have to actually talk about what they're doing. Um, and it doesn't require the direct to admit he's whining out loud, which feed forward does. Um, now look, there's a chance you don't like this answer. I don't know why you're asking me when you've got Marshall Goldsmith telling you feed forward. Um, I'm assuming you know that we recommend feedback in situations like this. Um, but as a behavioralist, somebody who believes in behavior, um, it was hard for me to get excited about the question because I didn't know what the behaviors were. That said, if you want another bite at the apple, if you want to send me a more fulsome, a more detailed description, uh, as the saying goes, write with details.
Okay. What are the downsides of social enterprises and a triple bottom line? All right, now look, folks, this really isn't a management question. It's an organizational question, and I would even argue it's a societal question. And I'm not Peter Drucker, who spends his time, spent his time thinking about societal questions and organizations' role in them. But I will share my thoughts. And for those of you who don't know, triple bottom line is shorthand for companies reporting on people, profits, and planets. And planet, sorry. Um, in my opinion, I don't recommend it. Um, the downside of triple bottom lines are that single bottom line companies, meaning profit-oriented companies, are hard enough to run as it is. In my experience, there are a lot of people advocating for more bottom lines, like people and planets, because they believe that profit is inherently wrong. Okay? These people are idiots. Okay? If you think that profit is not important, if you don't think that profit has led to the increased living standards that cause people to, in poverty today to live better than kings lived 150 years ago, you are smoking crack, my friend. The capitalistic enterprise and, and the ability to create profit, which, which is not just cash in some fat guy's pocket, it's, it's profit funds future innovation. Profit drives Apple's ability to roll out new products faster, okay? Um, more report cards being suggested by people who are stupid about why companies exist isn't a good solution to a problem that I really don't think exists. Or this problem of sustainability, which I think having companies being sustainable is a good thing, or caring about people, uh, I think that's only because um, uh, people have shined a spotlight on large organizations, and I actually happen to be a big fan of large organizations. It's popular right now to demonize corporations, but we at Manager Tools stand steadfastly in their corner. Look, the big companies of the world that people want to put new bottom lines on, if you will, are always considering people and the limited resources that exist in the world. Big companies that handle their people poorly or abuse their environment in the world of social media today, they're gonna get their comeuppance and they're gonna get lower profits and they're gonna die and that's good. But you know, the GEs and the Procter and Gambles of the world, and please don't tell me that GE or Procter and Gamble made a mistake in the past because uh, the, let, let me tell you, every organization in the world, fundamentally flawed. Why? Because it's full of people and people are fundamentally flawed. Okay? But the GEs and the Procter & Gambles and the J&Js of the world, and for that matter, the SC Johnsons of the world, um, these companies care deeply about their people and they don't need to report on it. And I read recently somebody saying, I read it in the Harvard Business Review, wouldn't it be great if CEOs were judged on how many jobs they created? Folks, I have to tell you, if you like that idea, you're nuts. Companies are not in the business of creating jobs. Companies are in the business of creating prosperity. And sometimes that's actually less jobs. If you had a CEO have to choose between people and or profits and more jobs, and he chose or she chose more jobs, and the company went out of business, suddenly you're losing lots of jobs. Companies are not employment agencies. They're, they exist to serve the society they're in, and the way we measure them is by profit, so we can give them more than enough money to continue serving us. Big organizations are really hard to sustain. They have all kinds of inertia that causes them to collapse on themselves, and profit keeps them from doing that. Um, now look, I don't have any problem with third parties who have different viewpoints about the capitalistic system making known what their opinions are on report cards on companies. I think that's great. I think let's, let's let some people choose to invest in a company because 
they have certain values to agree with. I think that's great. You're, be thankful for your freedom. Um, uh, and, and I think people should patronize a firm based on what, whatever values they choose, whether it's cheap or whether it's high value or whether it's because they have super cool values like a firm like Whole Foods, which I really admire. Um, but you start putting too many measures on a firm that's big and complex, you're going to make it too hard for it to succeed. I'm sure I just pissed off a bunch of people. Okay, number 13. I want to move from the U.S. to Sweden or to Norway. Okay. Um, full disclosure, folks, we have put this person in touch with one of our listener friends. Uh, Andy, thank you for allowing us to do that. Well done. Um, the guidance we have really doesn't change much. What we said in our guidance, um, I think, in fact, in this question, the, the questioner implies that our guidance isn't complete enough. We disagree. What we said was build a network. That works anywhere. Then we said Google the town you want to work in. And obviously, more is better. More towns is better if you only want to work in a particular country, right? We even used an example of a town in Germany. Um, so I, I think we've actually sort of already answered this. And yeah, an overseas move is hard. But Wendy tells me that Wikipedia says there are 8,000 U.S. expats working in Norway. If you didn't know that, you're not working hard enough. I would say overall, and this came from Wendy, network, be patient and keep researching. It's confusing, we agree. Uh, Wendy did it when she moved to Germany. She did it when she moved to the States. I don't know if you've seen the site My Little Norway, but there's a series of books uh, that are available called Living and Working in Various Countries in the World. They're helpful. Your alumni association might be helpful. Um, and look, if, if, if you're feeling in the US where laws are generally favorable toward employment as much as possible, which means less laws, obviously, um, if you think work permitting is hard from the US, that ought to give you some sense that you don't know what you're getting into. But that's just me. Okay, question 14. I think we're a little behind, aren't we, Wendy? Yeah. Okay. Okay. What would be a professional message to communicate to staff regarding pay inconsistencies? Okay. I'm going to assume that the questioner is asking me not to, how to communicate to the entire organization the way I would coach a CEO on. That's a consulting gig, guys. It's moments like these when there's a problem that remind us all that relationships with our directs that have caused trust to be built over time is what often separates good managers from bad managers, particularly during critical times. Okay? Far too many managers want to be able to get through times like these, but don't have the ability to communicate and persuade ethically because they haven't built the trust in the past. So they end up firefighting and they do use a lot of role power. And that doesn't work, and it doesn't build trust, and only means more firefighting in the future. The way to address this is to, the way to address it is to do this directly and openly. You've gotta tell them that yes, there are inconsistencies, and the company is aware of them, and you believe there'll be efforts made to fix them. Whatever you do, you have to deliver the message, even if you despair that the company will not do a good job. Otherwise, assumptions are going to be made that you not only take the company's point of view, which frankly you must anyway, you are the company, but you aren't willing to say that you take the company's point of view, which weakens your position as a manager enormously. It's cowardly in the minds of your directs. Now, there are those who are going to say that if you can't fix it, you oughtn't communicate about it, but that's wrong. We disagree. It's fundamentally wrong. We believe that's the equivalent of a direct knowing that they're going to be late, but not telling you they're going to be late until they know when they're gonna be back on track. 
That's not that's not what that's not what professionals do. Professionals communicate in good and bad times both. More communication is better. Horseman's second law. Look, no, look, I don't know your team, so I can't say for sure that an announcement in a team meeting would be warranted for certain, but I think it's highly likely that it is in this situation. Then you follow that up with individual meetings. Know what each of your team is making. It's the individual meetings that matter. Certainly you want a, a clear message. Hey, we're aware of this. It's been made clear to us. We're not perfect. Neither are you. We're trying to do our best. You know, it's something that's being looked at. Okay. If somebody asks you when you're going to solve it, when, when it's going to be solved, look at them and say, I don't know. I'm not on the team that's trying to solve it. Well, who's on the team? I don't know that either. And in the same way that you expect me to trust you, I expect you to trust me. Okay. Um, so you lay the groundwork for everyone the same in the team meeting, but then you focus on how to help each direct stay frosty through this challenging time. There's an old managerial rule that there are three groups when you have a crisis. One group, maybe 20%, is in front of a cart. Imagine you're trying to pull a cart. Um, one group is in front of the cart helping you pull it. Um, uh, the majority, 60% of your team, are in the cart neither helping or hurting, willing to go either way, and the last 20% are tugging actively against your effort to move the cart forward. And your goal is to minimize the effect of those working against you, at least in part by keeping them away from the group that's helping you. An old trick is one, something that I've done before is to do something that you've probably seen in the movies. When there's one guy standing up for what's right, and by the way, that's you, Mr. Manager, and his neighbors and friends are getting ready to do something dumb, the guys who win in those situations are the ones who look at the group and rather than exhort the group, say, hey, Bob, you can't mean that. In other words, they point out an individual in the group and say, Bob, you can't really mean this. Last year, the company and I stood beside you when you needed a lot of extra time for your family. I took a risk for you because things weren't right in your world, and now the company needs you to stand up and wait until we figure this thing out. So talk to the complainers the loud ones, the ones that you think are influential, individually. Um, and, you know, if they bring something up publicly, don't be afraid to have a word, to say a word, on behalf of the firm. Um, you are the firm to your, to your team, and so when you speak, you're speaking on behalf of the firm. Um, and when you talk about this to your boss, about helping him or her understand what the situation is, don't just bring whining, bring data. The people who are whining the lightest, what, loudest what their pay situation is, how far they off are, are from the median or the mean or whatever, and what they're saying and so on. Don't just say, yeah, my people are upset. Bring data, okay? Question 15. Um, uh, this is from an HR manager. Now, this, guys, this question was quite long. There's some stuff I, I know here that you guys don't know, but fundamentally, I absolutely think you can do what you're contemplating doing. If you have good relationship with these line managers, boy, I would absolutely use that good relationship. It's, it's, a, it's a treat to read a question like this from an HR person who has done her homework in advance. Okay? In this case, you're simply using relationship power and expertise power rather than role power in this one-on-one -on -one you've created. And it's not a manager-direct one-on-one. It's a peer-to-peer one-on-one, even though these people probably outrank you. You have to become a peer of theirs in terms of becoming a, a trusted advisor to them. Um, and there's nothing wrong with having a peer one-on-one -on -one based on relationship power and expertise power. We love it. I, I'm going to recommend a book. 
for you to read. It's called Flawless Consulting. It's by Peter Block. It is the Bible for consultants all over the world in terms of ethically consulting to people. And Block is very open about the need for internal consultants like HR or finance or, uh, or even IT in some situations um, or OD or 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 whatever. What you're shooting for here, and I'm going to use a couple of phrases from his book, is to be, continue to be a trusted advisor versus what he calls a pair of hands. That book is seminal in the consulting world, and you are a consultant now, even though you don't get paid what external consultants get paid. And look, I'd also encourage you to be aware of potential conflicts with your boss. Um, but that's true for all situations. So good luck. Keep us posted. Question 16. Um, how to be more effect, more effect, most effective at work when dealing with a large issue in one's personal life. Dude, let yourself off the hook. You're doing fine. By definition, when one's home is burned down, your sense of security is put at risk. But it, it, again, it sounds to me like you're doing fine. And I hate this part of my job that I can read three paragraphs and believe that I know what I'm talking about, but I've been doing this for a long time. So look, from this perspective, so what you're not doing feedback? So what about not rolling out coaching? Stop worrying about what you're doing in every detail and ask yourself how you're doing overall based on results. Managing isn't about any one individual managerial tool, whether it's ours or anybody else's. It's about results for the organization first and foremost. A team you've invested in in the past is gonna cut you some slack. If they don't, they're not emotionally mature enough to worry about what they think of you. So. Give a larger, larger percentage of your time to your family. Give a larger percentage of your time to their feelings, okay? 20 years from now, everyone in your family and some of your directs will remember the fire, but they won't remember jack about what was going on at work. And if your career is negatively impacted by that, so what? I got fired for doing the right thing. Stuff happens. You're okay. Let it go. 17, what do you say when a direct cries during a coaching conversation? What you do is you stop what you're doing and saying, do you need a moment? And you say, do you, would you rather continue this later? And you wait a bit, and you did that. Give them a chance to recover, and then decide what they want to do. In some cases, ask if there's something not, that they're not sharing that might be weighing on them. Open the door. If they choose not to walk through it, that may be some feedback to you about the strength of the trusting relationship you built if you thought that they would. And it's your job to open the door, but if they don't want to walk through it, they don't have to. Look, have a tissue handy. One of my favorite books from years ago, I can't remember the author now, but it's called Love and Profit. And there's an article, there's a, it's a series of poems and short stories about being an executive. And he says, you know, too many managers, when, they, when somebody cries, they walk out of the room as if there's no crying in baseball, like there's no crying in corporate, there's no crying in corporate America, like there's no crying in baseball. I, I, I gotta tell you something, every manager worth his or her salt has tissue in their office, okay? In this case, of course, they were on the phone with you, but offer to continue later as you did, and try not to tell you, tie yourself in knots wondering whether what you did or said was the right thing to do, as long as you're not yelling or threatening people, okay? It's not your fault that somebody cries. They're responsible for their own emotional maturity, okay? Someone crying, frankly, is much more noble, most more, much more normal than most managers care to admit. 
Some people are more prone to crying. John Boehner, the Speaker of the House, the United States House of Representatives, cries in good times and bad. He cries openly. And I heard somebody the other day say, what a, what a jerk that he does that. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? The guy's living the American dream. He's one of the most powerful people in our government, tries real hard. You may disagree with him or not. I don't know. But gee whiz, and the guy cries about tough situations? He's a pretty manly dude. I don't think he's worried about whether or not he's tough. Crying's okay. It happens. Treat the person with dignity. Be thankful that you can be composed. All right. Question 18. What's your guidance to mentally and emotionally build the separation between work and home, work problems and home life? It's a good question, but, but it's hard for me to answer this without knowledge of you particularly as a person. There are several things I, I could say, but I believe this question goes to the, a lot to the issue of one's character and one's emotional maturity, which I'd have to actually observe in order to make some suggestions um, because everybody always says they're emotionally mature. Um, it has been my experience both personally and in coaching many, many other people through situations like this that equanimity, it's one of my favorite words, often is only acquired by passage through a significant emotional event. Okay? And to be clear, the reason I bring that up is because no one I have ever known whom I would describe as having equanimity would ever have suffered from the kinds of doubts and second guesses you describe. Now, a caveat, if you're relatively new to your role, I would not be worried about what you're worried about. I would not be worried about what you're experiencing. Give yourself a year in any new role, particularly in a directorship or higher, before you worry about not handling the pressure well. Almost everyone I know at senior levels has taken jobs that they knew they didn't know how to do, but they did them anyway. In fact, uh, Sheryl Sandberg's new book, Lean In, if you haven't read it, you should, and she talks about taking more of a job than she could handle and stretching and discovering that all the other people at senior levels have done the same thing and sort of figured it out along the way. You know, once you face death or professional death through a firing or a layoff or some other bruising experience, your perspective changes. I'm going to the issue of significant emotional event here. You begin to realize that while it's important to be a professional at work, lives are usually not at stake and the pressure we apply to ourselves may be more self-inflicted distress rather than the kind of eustress we should have, okay? When I got fired, I realized, you know what, hey, I'm fine. It took me about a minute. I'm like, dude, this isn't so bad, I'm okay. Um, my sense of fear about my work had been wasted in my mind because my performance had been exceptional, but the fact is power is often capricious. And if you anguish about something you can't fully control, that's just folly. Um, but most of us can't learn that until you get, you know, you essentially feel the sting of capricious power landing on you, okay? And then you experience it and go, I didn't have anything to do with that. It's not my fault. I'm gonna stop fearing stuff I can't do anything about, okay? Um, let me suggest some other things. I encourage you to take a look at your internal company network. Do you have friends with whom you're sharing daily issues and listen to them share their challenges and their successes? It's always good to hear what I have always seen. Everybody feels pretty much like you do, dude. Okay? If you believe you're facing something fundamental, your mind is racing in a way that's bad, you feel physically affected, and I'm not talking about just being distracted, but I'm talking about heart racing, something like that. Dude, consider talking to a professional. I was one who for years, I was raised that one is, must be self-reliant. Uh, my mother 
often said, a mother is not someone to lean on, but someone to make leaning unnecessary. My brother once asked her why she didn't hug us. She says, I stopped hugging you when you were five. That's the last time you need to be hugged. That's just weird, dudes. Um, and so I poo-pooed the idea of professional help. But when I went through my divorce, I found that talking, having somebody to talk to um, was a huge plus for me. And unfortunately, in my case, having my own firm made me more of an island than I should have been. So I highly recommend professional therapy if you can afford it and if you have the time, if you think you need it. Something else too, talk to your spouse. Everyone I know who's good at balancing these kinds of challenges relies heavily on their spouse. Not necessarily to just talk to their day, but rather to keep them present with their family, okay? One more thing, if I were your friend at work or if I were a neighbor with similar responsibilities, I'd ask this, how are you doing at work? If you answered you thought you're doing fine, I'd tell you to pull your head out of your ass and stop guessing, second guessing what appears to be success. Relax a little, okay? I'd probably hand you as a gift one of those finger puzzles that you put your fingers in either end and the harder you pull, the more they grab and let go a little bit, breathe in, breathe out, move on. And yet again, worries like a rocking chair. Gives you something to do, doesn't get you anywhere. Okay, number 19, specific advice on hiring friends and relatives. <laughs> I love this one. It works fine to hire friends or relatives. Um, if you have a fabulous hiring process that is hard to make it through and you have really good managers who know how to manage people and separate family and relatives or relatives and friends from management, okay? But almost nobody has that, right? Many of the great family-owned companies of the world have family members in them and they work fine. And the weak family members don't get to the top. They're owners, but they don't get to the top. They don't get senior line management roles, okay? The question really becomes, are you hiring them because they're a referral or because they're family? And if that's the case, don't. If the process they have to go through is really hard, if they make it, they get the imprimatur of the process rather than their name or their friendships. And then once they're hired, manage them like anybody else, okay? Some folks can have family work for them because they're great managers and they're pretty rare. Some folks can have their friends work for them. There are a few more of these types of managers, but it's not like it's even 20% of managers. If you don't have good managers, you're wasting your time hiring people who are referrals and friends or whatever. Um, but if you have a good process and good managers, you can do it. Um, and I don't really worry about peer relationships in this case, because I assume both of those peers have a boss and that boss is responsible for those peers. I'm not saying I don't get your point though. Okay, that was number 19. And Wendy, we only had 19 questions, is that right? Yes. Yes, no, so here we go. I'll try to do them as quickly as I can, guys. We'll, maybe we can, uh, we're gonna get done in 25 minutes regardless, but, but hopefully we'll get a time for some questions, okay? So, have you ever changed your mind about guidance? Hell no, I haven't. I'm never gonna either. If I ever think I might change my mind about guidance, I'm not gonna give that guidance. I know what I know. Do I do anything similar to getting things done? Weekly review, yeah, I do, love it. Is it okay to schedule generic priority time on your calendar? Yeah, it is okay, but I think it's lame. Come on, put something in there. Think in advance. Don't just throw stuff down in your calendar. You're being sloppy. Can you separate responsibility from accountability? I can, in the dictionary. <laughs> but look, it's a fine thing, and most people don't understand the difference. Any person with responsibility can be held accountable, but generally accountability is closest to the action. Should you separate, separate responsibility from accountability? I generally don't think so. Um, but we're talking semantics here. Is rapid a better model than racy? No, I don't think so, but 
I wouldn't argue with somebody who felt it was otherwise. Are one-on-ones compulsory for directs? Damn right they are. Will Mark's book come out in 2013? Damn right it will, yes. Is there more, in fact, I was just going through it on my flight here today, uh, this morning. Is there more material in the podcast pipeline on how to work with an admin? Yes. Does managerial enterprise work still get done on golf courses like the past? Yes, but less so. Okay. Are you going to come to Minnesota in or before 2014? No. We could be changed. That could be changed, but no, it's not planned. Do you hire casual employees? No. Is that a black and white rule? No. Should you give feedback to your spouse? Oh, dear God, no. Are you watching the Masters this last weekend? Yes. I just, I just, uh, I just sent out things I think I think, and I think all you guys got it. And I mentioned Adam Scott. Um, great finish. Have I tweeted this week? Yes, several times. Did you read three books in one week? Yes. Why do people not believe what I say? And I do read three books all the time, every week. Um, I find the most unreadable, this is the next page. I find the most unreadable books are biographies. Self-biographies, which is actually called an autobiography. Are the worst business books autobiographical? No, the worst business books are management books. Autobiographies aren't business books, they're income generators. Sometimes I read a Dilbert and a month later a podcast in a similar vein comes out. Do I read Dilbert? Good Lord, no. I love Dilbert. He's great. No, of course, Dilbert. I have so many podcasts to get through, I don't need Dilbert's help. But Dilbert exists for the same reason we do, and the same basic problems occur all the damn time in the managerial world. Will the most often movie, the su- awesome movie of the summer be Star Trek? Highly probable, except for 42, about Jackie Robinson and the Dodgers and Branch Rickey. Is Fortune Magazine still worth reading? Yes, but you're not wrong in your concern about its editorialization and it's becoming more partisan, it's becoming more governmental, which really ticks me off too. Um, I'm going on maternal leave. I'm worried my directs will be burdened by my boss's desire to be involved in everything. Is it appropriate for me to check in while I'm officially not in my role? Yes. And since I assume you're a woman, please read Sheryl Sandberg's book while you're on maternity leave. Lean in, it's great. I would, if I were on paternity leave with you, I, I would, I would check in. Babies sleep a lot. You're going to probably go crazy being away from work. Okay. My director was caught on camera not paying for food. Okay. Should I talk to HR to advise on a course of action? Yes, you should. Okay. They probably have a good reason. Okay. I have an ex- excellent work relationship with somebody who is my boss's boss's peer, and now this person has become my boss's boss's boss. Should I be concerned that our relationship will be perceived as skipping levels instead of what it has always been, which is just a friendship? Yes, you should be concerned, but that doesn't mean it can't continue. You just have to be more cautious. You now have political weight against you. Be careful. Have you ever experienced significant differences how MT per- is perceived in different cultures like Europe or Asia? Yes, by people who haven't tried it. No one who's ever implemented our stuff agrees with what amounts to the xenophobia of that won't work here. The idea that manager tools won't work in different places is ludicrous. We have it working on every continent in the world. Okay. Do you allow someone who's on the bench some slack to start later and leave earlier? Sure I do. I allow people all kinds of slack. If I hire you, you're so good, I'm going to give you tons of slack as long as you get your work done. Um, but if they're not any good, don't give them a lot of slack. Employees become a high risk, openly complaining to a customer, breaching his NDA, non-disclosure agreement. Do you take him off the project? Yes. Okay. But stop asking yes, no questions of me, ending with, 
do I or do I not? <laughs> I'd fire this guy. If he breached his NDA and you guys are serious about your NDA, fire him. And you can't let your customers run your business. You run your business for your customers. Can leadership be learned? Oh, yes, it can. <laughs> Otherwise, it's genetic. God, what a horrible thing that would be. I don't understand this question. Is it just a trinity? Yes, it is, with four parts. I'm not sure what you mean otherwise. I'm a licensee, downloaded some of the show notes, but not all of them. Would you consider bundling these all into a single download? No. We already get enough piracy. Sorry. Okay. It'd be like 3,500 pages. Okay. And I think somebody would take it and do something illicit with it. We recently discovered somebody who had bought our interviewing series and has it posted nakedly on their website. And some other uh, BitTorrent company is selling it, unknown to the guy who's hosting it. We have an intellectual property lawyer we pay every month. Um, you've trimmed the length of your podcast way down. And I miss Princey's most, thanks for the feedback, Mark's extemporaneous remarks. Can you at least occasionally be expansive um, and have some longer casts? Only if you agree with the ones I plan on doing. Oh, wait, no, that, that doesn't make any sense. Um, sure, I can, and I will. A bunch of people have written to me and saying, I like Dard Mark. So, yeah, every once in a while, I will. Um, I've been very careful. The single biggest bit of negative feedback we've gotten in the last eight years, it's been eight years, folks, is Mark talks too much. Well, Mark knows that. If you don't like it, go somewhere else. But a lot of you have said, talking less, it's almost not as good. In various podcasts, you've made the mention of desire to do more video, but that hasn't happened. You can't find very many of them. There are some videos if you're not a licensee, but I assume you are a licensee. Will you be producing videos anytime soon? Yes and no. Um, video is 10 times harder than audio. We know you want more of it. We're not sure it's all that much better. Um, and we continue to struggle with that. Okay. Is it normal for a manager to sometimes have the thought, how the hell am I in charge of people? Yes. Um, it absolutely is normal. I'm not saying it's healthy, but it's absolutely normal. Can an A-game direct have a different dynamic with their boss, i.e. talk to them on the same level? Yeah, but I think this is the wrong question. I have a lot of A-game people working for me, but they're not on my level. Um, and I don't want them thinking they're on my level. Can I have a casual conversation with anybody? Sure, I can have a casual conversation. I can have a casual conversation about the weekend with my worst performer. Um, did Adam of the Bible have a belly button? Yes. It was an innie until the apple, and then it became an Audi. Does Mark abide by the cadet's code of ethics? Guys, there's no such thing as a cadet code of ethics. There's the honor code, okay? A cadet will not light you to steal nor tolerate those who do, okay? So no, I don't abide by the cadet honor code, but this is a stupid question. I follow the rules of golf, folks, and I have never lied about my golf score. I, I literally cannot believe somebody asked me this question. It is, I would say it's an affront, but people don't know what that means. Um, will Mark do a management reality television show? Are you effing kidding me? No. Um, the manager tools, career tools, recommendation to block your time on your calendar, uh, to work on high priorities. Mark says the purpose is not to defend your calendar from meetings. That's right, I don't. So should you set your time to appear busy on your calendar so that others are dissuaded from scheduling over it? Um, if I understand you correctly, if you're scheduling time for high priority items, then yes, of course, you, you would appear busy because you're scheduling time. It's as if you're meeting with yourself. Um, 
But if you're just putting time on your calendar willy-nilly and just saying, I'm busy then, and you're not scheduling something to do during that time, now you're using calendar technology to defend your time, and that's not the purpose. Schedule time to work on your high-priority items. And if you are, in fact, working on a high-priority item, which is not the same thing as scheduling it, then yeah, of course you're busy. Yes. Okay. I finished. An hour and 15 minutes. A little faster at the end. I, I, by the way, folks, before Wendy gives me, I think she has a couple of three questions, and we'll do the yes or no's that came in, Wendy, first. But folks, I'd appreciate an email to customer service at manager-tools.com telling us whether you, like, whether you like the yes or no questions. And please don't tell me you didn't like the funny ones. That's part of the reason we added them. Um, but if I get a lot of people saying they don't like them, we'll stop them and we'll add more questions. Okay, Wendy, what are the yes or no's? Is it unprofessional to take a sick day to interview at another company? Yes. It's unprofessional to take a, t to sick, to take a sick day to do anything other than be sick. You are making a professional, ethical statement about what's true. And so it's wrong. Take a vacation day. Do you expect that the United States will return to uh, less than five percent? less than 5% unemployment rate within the next five years? Yes. I absolutely believe in the inherent robustness of the American and, frankly, Western European and generally Western capitalistic liberal democracy systems. Um, uh, I have a lot of political experience, so I won't say much more than that. And I am incredibly hopeful every day of my life about the incredible potential of humankind and people want to work and when lots of people want to work um, barring some mind-bogglingly bad global geopolitical events we will get there does caring for your professional wardrobe include having your clothes regularly dry cleaned and pressed as opposed to exclusively using standard washing machines and dryers yeah I, I um I, I'm sorry, it's, it's, it's a bit like saying, have you stopped beating your wife? It's, you, can't, you can't answer the question. I mean, some clothes are laundered and some clothes are dry clean. If it's not made out of wool, um, then you probably don't have to dry clean it. You can launder it. Uh, you know, but let, let me give you some more, some more guidance. I routinely travel, I wear wool slacks when I travel. And if I wear a pair of wool slacks on a day of travel, I don't get them dry cleaned um, every single time. I'll hang them up with a belt in the belt loops for 24, 48 hours, although traveling, obviously I have to fold them when I'm, when I'm on a plane, um, and gradually wool springs back to its original shape and you, you, you end up with a, a pair of trousers that you can wear again. If you're wearing a lot of wool, um, it's not recommended you dry clean your wool unless you have a stain on it. What you do is you hang it and you let it breathe and it, it goes back to its original shape. Um, a lot of dry cleaning is not good. That said, I, I wear a lot of black shirts, like black golf shirts, and I dry clean those even though they're cotton um, because if you launder black, it starts to fade. And a faded black golf shirt on a really nice golf course looks cheesy. Um, but I, And I, I do launder my shirts because I don't have time to iron them and my shirts are no longer no iron. 
But guys, if you're if you're worried about a dry cleaning bill or something like that, the no iron shirts from Brooks Brothers and Lands End and many other places, Joseph A. Bank and so on in the United States are absolutely fabulous shirts. And I think the Lands End was like $29 or something. And it's a gorgeous, the Pinpoint Oxford is a gorgeous shirt. And you can launder that one and you can take it right out of the dryer. Um, I, I partially can't because I have to fold them up and that tends to be a little bit harder on them when I'm traveling. And you know, my days are expensive and I can't show up with any chance that they think my shirt might be wrinkled. And often I end up having to, to get them laundered. Um, if I'm in one place for three days, I get them laundered in the middle day. Um, I hope that helps. What else? Okay, this was sent as a yes no question, but it's, it's actually multiple choice. So I'm gonna give you multiple choice. So for simple okay. routine community, for simple routine communications from manager to direct, is it appropriate to A, send a tel cell phone text message, B, send a text-based instant message, C, use FaceTime, Skype, or other personal video conferencing, and to make it easy, I'll add D, all of the above. Yeah, I, I would say all of the above. I don't have any problem with text messages. I don't have any problem with Skype. I don't have any problem with any other video call. I don't have a problem with a phone call. I, you know, I generally, uh, and frankly, in many cases, email is fine. I don't, we, you know, we, we talk about the need to, to be good communicators and sometimes email's bad, but sometimes email's wonderful. Um, look, if you're gonna communicate with a high C, sometimes email's great. They don't wanna see you. Um, let me just make a slight uh, derogatory comment about instant messaging, uh, uh, instant messaging or, or um, some sort of messaging software. Um, it's not that that message that you're sending that's a routine bit of information, like I updated the spreadsheet the way you asked me, or I'm about to send you that email you've been waiting for. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem is the mass use of those things causes an incredible attention deficit among everybody who's involved, and people end up being distracted every 30 seconds by the scrolling list of messages between teams of people that are cross-communicating all the time. If you're a manager, I know people say, this is how we run our company. And, and, and so we're always on IM. I, we just fundamentally disagree with IM, except in if it's used very carefully, and I've never seen it used very carefully. Once it starts to be used, everybody devolves to instant messaging. I thought email was bad enough, people jumping into email when they should have been having face-to-face -face conversations, but instant messaging is worse. But could I use it to send something? Sure, I just have to learn that the value of that message is why I use it and not being distracted all the time by having the client up and running in my face the way I would toast in Microsoft Outlook. Next. What can I do in our one-on-ones to help him be more effective? Okay, go ahead. Okay, so he was managing a team of 12. He's now managing 30 people. It's a lot for him just to keep track of the day-to-day -day decisions that come his way in addition to building his team and I feel like I've thrown him in the deep end. He's the best sort of guy, great heart, good intentions, ethical and wants his team to be successful. He tends to do instead of manage, so sometimes he has to be redirected to focus at the 50,000 foot level rather than the 500 foot view. Um, he doesn't have any other experience in any other company and we are a growing small to medium sized business. We spend as much time on our infrastructure as we do executing business. 
she wants to know how she can use her one-on-ones to be more effective and she doesn't feel that she's doing the best job she can to help him. This is a great question. I really appreciate these kind of questions. I admire the person who's asking it. Okay, I'm gonna assume for now that the 30 plus is unchangeable um, because 30 plus is too many for most people. Uh, the, the first thing you have to do is you have to reinforce this person. You have to say, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. It's, it's gonna be fine. You're struggling, it's normal. 30 people would be a struggle for somebody with a lot more management experience than you. You're fine, I've got your back. And the point I made earlier in the call about You'll know you're in trouble when I come to you and say you're in trouble. If I don't tell you you're in trouble, everything is okay. Now, I'll still give you feedback, but you're gonna know well in advance that there's a problem, and I'm gonna tell you. Uh, if you believe this person's good, and I really appreciate what you said, this is a good person trying real hard, give them some cover. Tell them that they're good, and if anything goes wrong, make sure that you tell them, you let me know, and I'll help you defend yourself. This is a mistake that a lot of managers make, that they don't recognize the, the value of saying, here's the benefit of you telling me stuff early, okay? And if somebody hides something from you who works for you and you don't get a chance to protect them from somebody in HR or somebody in payroll or somebody, an executive in a line position or somebody in an internal client role that says your guy didn't do it and your direct didn't tell you about it, you, let, you leave them twisting in the wind and, and see what it's like to have a, a VP get hot under the collar at them, they'll realize real quick that they may be including you on the stuff that's going wrong, and you defend them. You stand and be their sword and shield and say, no, leave that guy alone. It was my mistake, even if you're fibbing, and I've got this. You let me talk to him, you come and talk to me, okay? Um, uh, so, so reinforce, tell them they're doing good. Too many managers don't see the goodness, and all they do is find the errors. But there's goodness there, and you should be telling him regularly, this guy, you're good, I've got your back, and then have us back. Uh, I don't know that the one-on-one -on -one is necessarily the right place for this, but, but, but you asked about one-on-one. -on -one. I'll tell you something you can do that I've done a couple of times in my career. I said to one guy who was significantly important, I said, you no longer have a 30-minute one-on-one, -on -one, you have a 45-minute interview. 45-minute one-on-one, and it's two parts. The first 30 minutes is our standard one-on-one, -on -one, and the next 15 minutes, we're gonna talk about you and your managerial skill. You're gonna bring questions, you're gonna ask issues, and I'm gonna tell you what I think you do. And I would be happy to continue helping if you wanna send me more detailed questions. Um, I would also do uh, a couple of more skip levels with his directs, since they're your skips, and see how things are going. Um, and I think you're probably on the right track. Great question, great question. Next, time for one more maybe? Yeah, following up the question related to confidentiality, is the dollar amount of my budget considered confidential or can I put it on my resume? You can absolutely put it on your resume, sorry. Didn't realize that was what the, the question was about. Yes, budget's normal, absolutely not confidential. One more if you can answer it in two minutes. How often should I be talking okay. to my remote directs during the week? I have weekly O3s and bi-weekly team meetings. I'm on a couple of weekly conference calls that they attend. Um, so, and we have two face-to-face -face meetings a year. So how often should I be talking to the remote directs during the week? And how often should I travel to see them during the year? Oh gosh, that's a great question. It's so hard to answer because it depends on your culture and your company and budget and everything else. I think twice a year, seeing them twice a year is probably a minimum. 
Now, I'm going to say something that will surprise some people. There are always rules about this, and I would push those rules until I got in trouble about how often I saw my folks. If they're clumped together, if you can figure out a way to not get deathly in trouble and see them six times a year, go see them six times a year, okay? Now, if they're just researchers and they like being left alone and they're all working in their homes and they're scattered across the country, it's a lot different, you know, right? It's very different. Um, but I would push my budget to make that happen. And I would be willing to get in trouble a little bit. And that's one of the things a lot of managers miss. You miss that part of your job as a manager is to find out what it takes to get in trouble. Not just to get in trouble, but to understand what the boundaries are. And the number of times that Wendy and I have laughed at each other because she said, I just went ahead and did it. And I said, She's I was afraid you might not like it. I'm like, no, it's fine with me. And you're like, oh. And when you said, oh, okay, I would have done it a lot sooner had I known that. And my general rule is if I haven't specifically prohibited it, prohibited it, it may in fact be a fine thing to do. Go do it. Let's find out. Because the stuff that I've already specifically prohibited, prohibited, that's the stuff that you might get in trouble for. Um, how often do I talk? Do you talk to them during the week? Boy, that's hard. I, I, I'll tell you this. Um, the, the start of an answer is probably you need to try to communicate with them more frequently than you do the people that you're co-located with. Because the people you're co-located with, you will randomly bump into. Um, and, and I've gone back and forth on this in terms of my own personal experience. Uh, I've recently made a commitment to do it more because I'm separated by, from my directs and we're, we're in the next year or two is gonna be a particularly um, busy time for manager tools. And I would just say, um, if you're only talking to them in your one-on-one -on -one once a week, that's not enough. If my one-on-one -on -one was Tuesday, I would definitely reach out to them by phone um, sometime later in the week and just ask, how's it going? How's everything going on? Um, and I would certainly um, uh, encourage you to do more than just what you listed. How much more? Hard to say. You don't need to talk to them every day, that's for sure. And it is now, what, 5.30 here in California, and so we have to go. Thank you all for listening. It's, it's, it's a privilege to serve you in this way, and I know you took a lot of time, some of you away from your families. And for those of you who dialed in from Australia, oi, 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 and I'll see you soon. And uh, well done, Adam Scott. Thanks all. Have a good evening.